Well, hey, it's great to be with you, and you're going to want to grab your Bibles and open them to the book of Philippians. We started a study a couple weeks ago, which you uh, likely know, and we are reading one of Paul's uh, letters from prison, uh, written to strengthen and encourage his brothers and sisters at Philippi that are literally just a few hundred miles up the road, but Paul is not able to be with them face-to-face. And where better to write a letter, uh, and when do you have time on your hands, than when you're sitting in prison? Uh, There are some very famous prison letters that have deeply impacted uh, literally around the world. Uh, North America's most famous letter from prison would have to be Martin Luther King Jr.'s Letters from a Birmingham Jail. Uh, In this note, he writes, never before have I written a letter this long, or should I say a book? I'm afraid that it's much too long to take your precious time. I can assure you that it would have been much shorter if I had been writing from a comfortable desk. But what else is there to do when you're alone for days in the dull monotony of a narrow jail cell other than write long letters, think strange thoughts, and pray long prayers? Now, this letter was actually not that long. It was only about 7,000 words. Uh, You can fit it onto six pages. And it was written on the margins of newspapers in pieces that he would uh, have access to in the prison cells. But it galvanized uh, the civil rights movement in the U.S., written to contrast his opponents who were basically saying to, to Martin Luther King, why are you sticking your nose in here? This is really none of your business. You're not even from Birmingham. Why are you doing this? And indeed, the world would be a much poorer place if we didn't have these letters from prison. There's a lot of famous ones. Uh, Anne Frank's The Diaries of a Young Girl, uh, which is now 75 years old, gave the world a glimpse inside the horrors of Nazi death camps from the perspective of a 13-year-old girl. Nelson Mandela's autobiography, The Long Walk to Freedom, Uh, that chronicles his 27 years of imprisonment and his ultimate rise to power as South Africa's first black president and his winning the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, maybe you don't know, was written from a prison cell. Uh, It is the best-selling Christian book in world history, second only to the Bible. 250 million copies continue to be sold these days, Uh, And yet Bunyan was in prison for preaching the gospel when he wrote this book. And then, of course, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, letters and papers from prison that strengthened the anti-Nazi resistance in Germany and beyond during World War II. Several letters from prison are included in the New Testament. Uh, The the letter to the Ephesians, the letter to the Colossians, uh, uh, the letter to a man named Philemon, and The last book of the Bible, The Revelation of Jesus Christ, was written by John in exile on the Isle of Patmos. And the book of Philippians was written from prison. Now, Philippians was not written as a complaint or a protest, but Philippians was written by Paul to pour courage into his readers. I might be in chains, but the gospel is not chained. The gospel is advancing, and in that I rejoice, and so too you should rejoice. And the implication, of course, was don't cry for me, but join me in these efforts. Uh, If if in Acts 16 that we looked at a couple weeks ago, we saw how the gospel transcends the socioeconomic barriers between us, how a entrepreneur, white-collar businesswoman, Lydia, 
and a slave girl who's oppressed by a demon and a blue-collar Joe Jailer, a security guard, could be brought together by the gospel. If all those social economic barriers could be torn down, today we see that the gospel has the power to transcend any circumstance. You might ask the question, what are the necessary ingredients for the gospel to flourish? Uh, Is there only one type of government where the gospel flourishes under? Are there political circumstances that are more advantageous to propel the cause of the gospel? And maybe there are, but it would be more accurate to say that the gospel is not bound by any of these things. That the gospel cannot and will not be chained, and that the gospel can and does flourish anywhere, in any circumstances. And so Paul is saying is that even here, under arrest, in this prison, I've not lost my confidence in the gospel. I am not ashamed. And so if you wanted a one-sentence summary statement of our text today, chapter 1, Verses 12 to 18, it would be basically this. If you need a little courage, take some of mine. If you need a little courage, take some of mine. I am not discouraged. In fact, I'm rejoicing is what Paul would go on to say. So we're going to ask three questions of this text as we work our way through it. What happened to Paul? Why was Paul rejoicing? And what's all the fuss about? What happened to Paul? Why is he rejoicing? And what's all the fuss about? Uh, So our text starts like this, uh, chapter 1, verse 12, just that first verse. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, that statement, of course, assumes that the Philippians who received this letter knew what had happened to Paul. I don't want to assume that each one of you knows what happened to Paul. You are jumping into the middle of a story. It's like, hey, did you hear what happened to so-and-so? And you're like, no, tell me what happened. I know that you're aware of what has happened to me, Paul said. And you go, well, what has happened? Well, the short answer is this. Paul is in prison, and these people have heard about it. That's the short answer. But for the longer answer, we've got to go back into the book of Acts, the the history book, and take the time from chapter 16, where Paul first met these people, and fast forward our way through the rest of the text. He meets them in Acts 16. In Acts 20, several years later, we see that Paul is back in Macedonia visiting these people. And then in Acts 20, verse 6, we get this line, and we sailed away from Philippi. And so as far as we know, this was the last time that Paul saw these people face to face. And ultimately, he's headed for Jerusalem. But along that journey to Jerusalem, from present-day Greece over to present-day Turkey, and then around to Syria, and finally down to Jerusalem, Paul makes several stops along the way. And you've got maps in the back of your Bible. You can look at his third missionary journey, and you can follow his path. But his first stop is to meet with the elders from the church at Ephesus, where he had spent over two years raising up a preacher's training school. And he meets with them out at the seashore in a little town called Miletus to encourage them and to challenge them. It is a a very famous leadership text. Watch over the flock of God that you have been made overseers of. Dark days are ahead of us. What's ahead for me? Paul asks. Well, basically, I don't know for sure, but I know somehow in my gut that it will not be good. In fact, I have a sense that I might never see you again face to face. 
And in Acts 20, he says this, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not count my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. What Paul says is, I just know it in my gut that prison is in my future. What's ahead for you, leaders of the church at Ephesus? Well, you need to know that wolves will arise from within. Watch over the flock of God, because literally from within the church, false teaching will arise. And so pay careful attention to your life and to your doctrine. Pay careful attention to the flock that you are giving care to. So from Miletus, he then travels down to Syria. He lands at Tyre. And in Tyre, it says uh, in verse uh, 4 of chapter 21, And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And then look at this. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. But Paul moves from Tyre on to Caesarea, and there he stops again to visit the believers. And there is a prophet named Agabus who takes his belt, ties up his own hands, and then he says this, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Are you getting the theme? Are you following the storyline? Uh, wherever Paul goes after leaving Philippi, he is being told, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Nothing good is going to come from this visit. And yet Paul is compelled by the Spirit of God, and he doesn't shrink back from this calling. From Caesarea, Paul goes on to Jerusalem. And seven days later, he is indeed arrested. And there, there is a lot to this story. You can read all the details. Just the last nine chapters of the book of Acts, it tells the whole story. And we don't have time, and nor is it our primary focus. But to make a long story short, Paul is bounced from one kangaroo court to the next. He gives testimony before three leaders, Claudius Lysias, Governor Felix, Governor Festus. And all three of these Roman governors conclude that there is no case against him. There is no breaking of a Roman law with which they could charge him, and they would have set him free. They would have sent him back and just let the Jews decide it based on a religious council. But Paul knew of a plot to kill him if he was released. And so he appeals his case to Caesar. Now that's an interesting appeal because Roman law made this provision. It was called provocatio that any Roman citizen, if they didn't feel they would get a fair trial uh, on the outskirts uh, of the empire, they could literally appeal to Rome. And they would be shipped to Rome, and there they would await trial before Caesar himself. So this is what happened to Paul. He arrives in Rome, and the end of the book of Acts tells us this. He lived there two whole years teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 1 verse 12, 
I want you to know what has happened to me. Well, that's what has happened. Paul left them, traveled to Jerusalem, and was sent to Rome as a prisoner. So the second question then might follow. Well, if Paul's in prison, what's he rejoicing about? When we get to the end of this text, you will see him use that phrase that Christ is being preached and in that I am rejoicing. Uh, But read on in this context, uh, chapter 1, verse 12, again, and then into 13. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. You see, Paul had written to the Roman church several years earlier. And he had said to them, you know what, God is my witness and I pray for you often and I pray this prayer for you uh, that somehow, Romans 1, 9 to 15, that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. I long to see you. I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. I'm eager to preach the gospel in Rome. You see, Paul had written that letter years before. When he is first arrested in Jerusalem, back in Acts 23, he has a vision in the night, and the Lord comes to him, it says in Acts 23, 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Now, Paul might not have anticipated how he would get to Rome as a prisoner, but now he's here. And he wastes no time getting on with gospel ministry. He calls Jewish leaders to come and he tells them about the Christ and how he is the hope of Israel. And some believe, some reject his message. He then goes to Gentiles and begins to preach to them. And and you might say, well, how is it that Paul could carry on ministry from the prison cell? Well, we need to understand that he is not in a dungeon. He is not in a narrow prison cell. He is under house arrest. Uh, He had a level of freedom to come and go. Uh, As a Roman citizen, because he is awaiting trial, he has not yet been proved guilty of the charges, he is given a level of freedom. So he is being observed, he is being watched, he is not free to travel, He he cannot leave Rome more than likely, he cannot leave his house, and he is under constant guard, but he can receive visitors. And he can carry on his ministry. He can teach and he can write letters. Uh, You want to understand house arrest. We've had a classic case of it here in British Columbia over the last three years. If you've been watching the news at all, you will have seen the case of Meng Wanzhou, uh, the Chinese national who was held for three years here in Vancouver under house arrest. And when you would see her in the news, there would inevitably a shot that would scan down to her ankle and you would see the ankle bracelet that would monitor her activities. And she was held captive, we were told, in her Shaughnessy mansion. She was free, but not free. She couldn't leave the country. Now, Paul was not free to travel. He likely couldn't even leave the house. He didn't have the privilege of uh, private shopping sessions at Nordstrom or dinners at high-end restaurants. But he could receive guests, and he did. For two years, he held Bible studies with anybody who would listen. And so a Roman guard, we know, would be on on guard at all times. Uh, They would be listening in. They were watching over this potential political prisoner, and there's at least two opportunities for Paul. Obviously, there's the opportunity for direct conversation with these guards. 
When he is alone with them, maybe they ask the question, why are you here? What charge are you facing? Or Paul initiating the conversation and just entering into their lives. We can be assured that Paul with his extrovert, apostolic, evangelistic mindset would have taken every opportunity to speak to these guards. But secondly, we know that these guards would have been eavesdropping on Paul's conversations because Paul was a potential threat to the state. So the state would have been very interested in what Paul was saying as he was receiving all these visitors as they came and went. The state would want to know what was it he was teaching. Is there anything in his teaching that is treasonous towards the state? And so these guards literally would have been all ears to those conversations. And over a period of two years, the word spread among the guards, and the text tells us that the whole of the imperial guard, in other words, all of Caesar's imperial army that were given the watch care of the capital city, the Praetorian Guard in Rome watching over Caesar's palace, uh, it's like in our day, national security, the guards watching over 10 Downing Street or 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue or Rideau Cottage. You try to drive a car through the gate at Rideau Cottage, somebody's gonna stop you. Now we don't know the impact of Paul's preaching specifically, we're not told. We don't know how many of these guards came to faith in Christ, but what we do know for sure from church history is that Christianity grew quickly in Rome, so much so that the Christian population began to start making waves in the capital city and they attracted unwanted attention from the state. And in fact, just a few short years later in the 80s, 60s, they began to experience persecution under Nero because he saw the Christians as a threat to his rule. And so Paul rejoices in his opportunity. Because he's like, outsiders are hearing the gospel. I've had an opportunity to preach to an audience that I would have never had the chance to preach to. The whole of the Praetorian Guard has now heard the gospel. Is that not amazing? But secondly, he refers to the influence on the insiders, if you will. If the outsiders, the Roman guards, were hearing, also the insiders, the believers, are strengthened. Uh, Look on down to verse 14. Most of the brothers... Having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. The brothers and sisters are being encouraged. As the word spreads among the believers in Rome and as the gospel starts to take root in the hearts and lives of more and more people, they are emboldened to take courage. And this has always been an effect of persecution on the church. From the very earliest of days, uh, in the New Testament period, when the the church is just birthed in Pentecost and the affecting weeks in Jerusalem, and Peter and John are arrested, they are put in prison, and the church calls a prayer meeting. And they're crying out and they're praying for these men. And it's interesting what they pray. Acts 4, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. It's significant in that context that the believers don't pray, Lord, stop the persecution. Lord, keep us from this, uh, the hardship of the government coming down on us. The rules and the laws, they're unjust, they're unfair. Lord, rescue us from us. There's, there's no prayers like that. They're like, Lord, in the midst of this persecution, would you make us bold? I don't think I've ever been part of that kind of a prayer meeting in my lifetime. And more than likely, it's because of the part of the world that we live in. 
But millions around the world are praying just like this today. Lord, you know the persecution that we live with, so make us bold. Make us bold, Lord. And you see, the same thing was happening here at Rome. The believers, upon hearing of Paul's imprisonment, they grew in their boldness. If Paul's willing to suffer for the gospel, if he can endure prison, then surely I can be a bit bolder in my witness. But there is an interesting twist. And as you read on the rest of our text today, verse 15 to 18, it says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. You see, some were standing with Paul in solidarity and love and out of goodwill were preaching the gospel, but there were others who were, in essence, saying, let's draw attention to this guy and let's make his life worse. We don't know who those people were, and it, it frankly doesn't really matter. It could have been some of the Jews who had rejected his message. It could have simply been other Romans. There were those who believed the message and many who rejected it. And in rejecting this message, they also rejected the messenger. They not only hated the gospel, but now they began to hate Paul. Have you heard about the crazy Christian who's under house arrest? He's going on about some dead guy that he thinks rose from the grave. Can you believe it? And he's got the audacity to challenge the emperor, to say that idols are no gods at all. Can you believe what this guy is preaching? And, and in their maligning of his testimony, they actually are preaching the gospel themselves. And Paul, in essence, says, whatever, whatever, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. Good motives or bad motives, Jesus' name is spreading, and in that I rejoice. You've more than likely heard the line, there is no such thing as bad publicity. Uh, it's being debated in our day of social media and cancel culture and all of those things. But the concept is this, that if you are being reviewed by the press, whether positive or negative, rejoice in the fact that you are being reviewed and your name is out there for people to draw attention to it. Uh, we watched this very up close and personal this last summer. You will know that we're helping plant a church in Kelowna called Praxis Church, a partnership with Westside Church in Vancouver, sending a church planter, and we've rejoiced to be able to help them along the journey. And in the early days, in the pre-launch days, before they even formally opened, they somehow got on the radar of the LGBTQ community. And in essence, it was, let's kill this baby church before it even gets out of the gate. Protests were organized beginning online, Facebook and Instagram, literally hundreds of posts. The landlord where we rent a building from was harassed by activists. Call the local paper and the city and stage a protest outside the services. The building where they rent was plastered with rainbow posters in the night. And in the midst of all this, this new little church plant got a ton of free publicity. That's the strange part. Uh, 
While they were being protested, there were over 3,000 visits to this brand new website, a website for a new church that nobody even knew existed, and suddenly there are thousands of visits, dozens of interested emails. People saying, you know what, I had never heard of you, but because of this storm, I've now heard about you. I'm going to check you out. I'm, I'm going to come visit, I think. And many letters of encouragement. We're praying for you. See, we send church planters to regions all around the world as Northview. Regions around the world where workers cannot get in under a religious worker visa. Regions where missionaries are no longer welcome where missionaries have been expelled from the countries and where the gospel message of Jesus Christ is not welcome. And even knowing a little bit of their story and the stories that they can share with us without fear of endangering the people they work among, those little bits of stories that we hear breathe courage into our lives to stand a little taller and a little bolder for the sake of the gospel. And as Canada drifts further and further away from our heritage and from our gospel roots, we can take courage that we're in the company of great men and women who have gone before us and we stand on their shoulders and we get prepared knowing that the gospel cannot nor it will not be chained, even if we have to suffer for it. But all of that leads us to a bigger question. Because someone might say, okay, I get what happened to Paul. He went to prison. And I understand that he was happy that the gospel was being preached, but I don't understand what's all the fuss about. What was the big deal? What was specifically behind this persecution? And, and if you're reading carefully, you will see the implications are very, very clear. Scan through the text again and, and look at your Bibles. Look at verse 13. Look at verse 16. Paul says, it is known throughout the imperial guard that I'm imprisoned for Christ. Verse 16, I'm put here. In other words, I'm in these chains. I'm under arrest because of my defense of the gospel. Now you need to press pause and then ask the question. Well, what was it about this gospel and what that word implies. In fact, do we even really know what the word gospel means? It's a, a religious-sounding word, but does the man on the street know what that word gospel means? Uh, we've thrown it out again and again already in these uh, few moments together. Every, every time we meet, we talk about the gospel. Christians are always referring to the gospel this, the gospel that. But what exactly does the word gospel mean? And why is it so controversial that people would literally get killed over this thing called the gospel? Well, I'm glad you asked. If you look at dictionaries and you compare a couple of them, so Merriam-Webster's Dictionary and Dictionary.com, if you take those two and you, you weave them together, you basically get the same answer. Uh, the Message Concerning Christ, uh, one of the first four books of the New Testament, the message or teachings of a religious teacher, and something accepted or promoted as infallible. Now, it's very interesting to note that literally these secular dictionaries now define the word gospel as the, the teaching of Jesus Christ because that's not actually what the word gospel means. It, it may be accurate in that that is the intended import of the word gospel, but when you look at the derivation of the word gospel, it, there's a more direct translation. You see, the word gospel is a modern English word that comes from an old English 
two words, good spiel. And that phrase, good spiel, was the translation from the Greek language. And so in the Old English, they said good spiel, which was then combined into gospel. Uh, it is the news. It is a proclamation. Good spiel simply means good talk or good message or good news. And good spiel, gospel, was the translation of the Greek word evangel. Evangel is the word in the Greek language. Uh, Jesus used this word in, in Luke 4 when he announced his public ministry. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach Good news, right there is that phrase. Uh, good spiel, uh, the evangel. Uh, you've already noted it. It's the same root word that we get the English word evangelist or evangelical from. People of the news, people of the gospel or a spokesman for this message, an evangelist. And so the gospel, when we understand it correctly, just simply means good news. In fact, that would be a better translation, I think, in our culture today. Instead of as Christians talking about the gospel, which many people may not understand what we're talking about, that we would simply say the good news. There's good news. Paul said to the Corinthian church, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the good news that I preach to you of which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That this is the message. This is the good news. It's about Jesus. Life, death, burial, resurrection, his ascension into glory, and all that that accomplished, all that is rolled into that story of Jesus. Tim Keller is a pastor who is now retired, but pastored for many, many years in Manhattan, in New York City. And he says this, the gospel is good news, not good advice. The gospel is the good news announcing that we have been rescued or saved the gospel is news about what has been done by Jesus Christ to put right our relationship with God. That's what the gospel is. If you want it in three simple words, J.I. Packer taught for years at Regent College just down the road. He said, if you want it in three words, you could do no better than simply saying, God saves sinners. Now, every one of those three words could have volumes written about it and actually has had volumes written about it. God, write a theological treatise. Saves, write theological treatise. Sinners, write a long dialogue, but three simple words, God saves sinners. And you see, the Jesus part of that story is part of a greater story of God, the story of the universe and the story of our lives. And so while it is indeed true to say that God saves sinners, that sentence needs to be placed in its greater context. Where do these sinners come from and, and what makes them sinners and who's to say what's right and wrong and whether uh, we need to be saved or not? And so the gospel on another level then raises the story to a, a higher level, to a grander scale. It is the story of, and you will have heard us say this if you've been around Northview any length of time. Just four words will help you memorize the gospel. Creation, fall, redemption, 
and restoration. If you can memorize just those four words, you can remember the grand story of the gospel. Creation, that it began, we believe, when God spoke creation into existence. That we are not here by accident, but God literally spoke this universe into existence with a purpose. Then there came a fall or a rebellion of humankind against him. Then came the story of redemption through Jesus Christ. And ultimately, our hope of restoration, that this heavens and earth that we see around us will be recreated to its original glory. So that's the gospel. And the bottom line is this, the gospel is good news. But if the gospel truly is good news, then why is it so controversial? Why wouldn't every person on the planet gladly and willingly receive this message? And, and why would Paul say in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? What was there to be ashamed about? What, what is so offensive about the gospel? Well, let me give you three objections that I have heard over the years, and you probably can come up with more of your own that you have heard, but let me give you six. First of all, the gospel is offensive to me because your good news sounds more like bad news. If I'm to believe what you say is true about this story, then you and I are sinners, we're rebels, we're God's enemies, and we stand under the rightful judgment of God. And that doesn't sound like very good news to me. In fact, the very implication that I need a savior is offensive. Because I think I'm doing pretty well on my own. I don't think I need anybody to rescue me. And if I do need rescue, I think I can figure it out all on my own. Thank you very much. That objection would lead to a second. I find your gospel offensive because it insults human pride. Right out of the gate, your gospel sounds arrogant and offensive. You tell me that I cannot save myself, and I find that hard to believe. The gospel is an attack on my pride, my self-worth, my esteem. You tell me that it is impossible for me to please God, and yet every other world religion tells me it is possible for me to please God. That if I pray enough, give enough, serve enough, sacrifice enough, I can tip the scales in my favor. God will weigh out the good in my life and the evil in my life. And in the end, my good will outweigh the bad. I have a part to play in this. Third, your gospel sounds too exclusive for me. You Christians are so narrow-minded. You keep saying there's only one way. Do you really think that Jesus is the only path to God? What are you going to say to all the other world religions, that they're wrong? The fourth, and maybe a little bit of twist on the third, is that I find your gospel actually to be too inclusive. Because if what the Bible says about all of us is true, then it really makes me feel uncomfortable because the implications of this news is that I'm no different than anybody else. That I'm no worse than anybody else, and, and maybe that's easier to accept, uh, but that I'm no better than anybody else, no better than all those evil people in the world, that, that can't really be fair or right. You've got to admit that there are some people in the world who are just naturally more deserving. They are better. They are, they are good people. So when you say there's no distinction between us, that we're all in the same sinking boat, that we're all equal before the cross, that just sounds too inclusive to me. That we're all equally lost? Surely, 
the billionaire and the, the movie stars who are doing so much good in the world for social justice causes can't get lumped in with the wife beater and the, the petty thief. It just doesn't make sense. It's too inclusive. Fifth, you tell me it's free, but actually it costs a lot. I don't think that uh, everyone gets this, that in order to get in on this good news, you have to lay your life down, that the entry price is actually quite high. I mean, I don't mind adding a little religion to my life. I'm willing to put some money in the offering plate once in a while, and I'm willing to volunteer now and then for a good cause, but what this talk about taking up your cross is like, I don't know. Or calling Jesus master or Lord. I mean, that sounds like slavery, and we got rid of that decades ago. I heard someone quoting this German guy, a German guy who was hanged by the Nazis in World War II. I think Bonhoeffer was his name, and, and he said something like this, that when God calls you to come to him and follow him, he bids you to come and die? I just got to tell you, that, that's not a great marketing slogan, just, just saying. And finally, number six, this gospel thing really seems too invasive and too intrusive for me. You see, why do you really care about how other people live their lives? Does your belief in God really have to impact every single area of your life? Why can't you just believe what you believe about God and keep it separate from the rest of your life? The idea that you want to take this message out and force it on the world around you, the idea that Jesus cares about every detail of every area of my life, that really the God of the universe cares about my money, he cares about my sex life, like really, if I were to embrace what I hear you saying, it would mean I would have to entirely change the way I live my life. Uh, I don't like your gospel. Now, I hope you're hearing me correctly. All of those six were said a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but they are common objections to the message of the Bible, and I've heard all of them. And frankly, there's some truth in each one of them. Yes, the good news implies that there's bad news because only dying people need to be rescued. And yes, the gospel is incredibly inclusive. It is open to all who will receive. And it is also clearly exclusive. Only one way of salvation. The gospel demands a response of humble repentance that I would say that I was wrong and turn away. And, and the gospel confronts directly the pride of humanity. And the gospel impacts every area of our lives as we are called to lay our life down for Christ. And yes, the gospel spills over into the world around us as we look for societal change. And so in the early 1800s, when missionaries start arriving in Calcutta, and when they bump into the Hindu practice of suti, which was basically that a widow, when a husband had died, the widow would be burned alive on his funeral pyre in order to move her forward in the, the reincarnation cycle. And William Carey, as a missionary in his first few years, documented literally 438 cases in, in just the first few years and then began to fight against this practice. And in our day, people would say, why can't you Christians leave the Hindus alone? 
Let them practice their religion however they want to practice. Isn't this colonialism at its very worst? Why would you think that you should come in with your Western Christianity and change the practices of ancient Hinduism? And yet Christians said we need to stand up for these women who are being wrongfully put to death. And the law was changed in 1829. It's like... Martin Luther King Jr. writing from his cell in Birmingham that the gospel compels us to move forward. He said this, that just as the 8th century prophets left their little villages and carried their thus saith the Lord far beyond the boundaries of their hometowns, and just as the apostle Paul left his little village of Tarsus and carried the gospel of Jesus to practically every hamlet and city of the Greco-Roman world, I too am compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my particular hometown. Like Paul, I must constantly respond to the Macedonian call for aid. You see, friends, if we're going to be fruitful in the time and place where God has called us, and that was last week's message, that Paul prayed for these people, that their love would abound in knowledge and discernment, they would approve what was excellent, they would be pure and blameless in order to bear much fruit for the kingdom of God. And if we are going to bear much fruit and be faithful in the time and the place where God has called us to, we need to know that this message will not always be welcome. And so we need to close, obviously, but I've got to ask you, Are you ready? First, have you yourself responded to the offer of new life in Christ? Have you personally responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ? And then secondly, have you considered the cost of following Jesus as the days grow darker? Can we and will we, like Paul, be able to rejoice that even if, like Christ, we have to suffer for our faith Will we rejoice? Because what Paul is really saying to the Philippians, and I think through this letter to us as well, if you need a little courage, then you can borrow some of mine. Let me pray for you. Father, we don't know what lies ahead of us. We have an inkling in our spirit that there are darker days ahead of us culturally. We watch what is happening in Western culture around us, and we we are deeply disturbed, Lord, on so many levels. And yet, Father, I pray that you would strengthen us, that you would prepare us, that you would get us ready for the battles that are ahead, and that in the midst of even the worst battles that may come, that we would be able to rejoice. That like Paul would say, even from this prison cell, I'm rejoicing because the gospel cannot and will not be chained. And so, Lord, we don't know what the days ahead hold, but I pray for the men and women listening to this message that whatever the circumstances we are up against and we will face, that we are facing today and will face in the future, that we will have the courage, like the Apostle Paul had, to say, in this I rejoice, that whether for good motives or bad motives, the gospel is advancing. And Lord, this will bring you glory. And in bringing you glory, it'll also bring us great joy. And so we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.